Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My name is Edward Rees. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. My identity is, I call it queer. Edward Rees works for the Ukrainian NGO called Kyiv Pride. He's currently living in Copenhagen, which means that this year he attended Pride events in countries all across Europe. So I called him because I wanted to hear about his experiences and how Pride in Ukraine compares with the rest of Europe. I had to leave Kyiv because health issues. And I was representing Ukraine and leading Ukrainian groups on seven pride parades in different countries in Sweden, Poland, Denmark, Germany, and Hungary. What was the queer community in Ukraine like in general before Russia invaded? We had a very big and bright and vibrant community. So this year is our 10th anniversary and we kind of celebrated it in the worship. We had different events. We had uh, been working with advocating laws like anti-hate crime law and gay marriage or civil unions law. I would say that, yeah, it was kind of a European movement. So like the whole pride movement stood for Ukraine and the whole pride movement in Europe, in Canada, in the US, in New Zealand, uh, everywhere were standing for Ukraine. And it was really important for us to see and to feel. After the invasion, I would say that definitely many people left the country. And I know that many people don't want to return uh, because we still don't have all the nice things that like Iceland or Germany or Canada have right now. And other thing is that LGBTQ soldiers are visible. There are a lot of them. There is an organization of LGBTQ soldiers and veterans in Ukraine. And uh, actually, I would say that uh, this visibility of LGBTQ soldiers also changes the mindset of Ukrainians because Ukrainians uh, see that there are gay men, trans people, lesbians, bisexuals protecting Ukraine and fighting together with the cis hetero people in the army on the front line. Ukrainian society is really changing. And it's changing because of the invasion. It's changing because of the visibility of queer activists and queer soldiers. And definitely it's changing because we want to go to Europe and we want to go as far from Russia as possible. And we know that Russia is like one of the most homophobic countries in the world. One of the countries with the most discriminative politics. How do you think the fight for LGBTQ rights in Ukraine kind of relates to this fight against Russia. Ukraine uh, has to go as far from Russia as it's possible. And definitely the talk about human rights as a whole, not only LGBTQ rights, but human rights as a whole uh, is very important because 
Russia definitely like doesn't think about human rights at all. They don't think about human rights starting from 2013, at least, uh, when they introduced the anti-gay propaganda law. Russia's anti-gay law claims to be for the purpose of protecting children from information that advocates for a denial of traditional family values. Putin signed this law in June of 2013. It bans any so-called propaganda about non-traditional sexual relationships among minors. Well, that's what Russia claims it does anyway. In my personal opinion, anti-gay propaganda law in Russia was like the first step into uh, this country becoming total empire and dictatorship. Understanding that human rights is the core value of any modern country which wants to grow, which wants to change, which wants to be better for their people, that like human rights is the main thing. I see that Ukrainians and our politics, uh, our politicians start to understand this. Definitely they start to understand this also because of all the rules for going into the EU. We have seen Zelensky uh, signing the Istanbul Convention. So the Istanbul Convention is a human rights treaty of the Council of Europe that combats violence against women and domestic violence. Ukraine ratified this treaty in the summer of 2022. So now when we have this clearly paved path to European Union, they will have to do it and they will have to give us civil unions or gay marriage and they will have to give us uh, anti-hate crime laws because if no, they will not uh, be accepted. We will not be accepted in the union. So how do you think then the lives of the queer community, of the Ukrainian queer community will change if or not if, but when uh, we do become a part of the European Union? I would say that the life of LGBTQ people in Ukraine will not like kind of become better. We will make it better. We will have to build this new life. Like we are already rebuilding destroyed cities. We will have to rebuild this life. We will have to create it in some places from stretch, like from zero. But I know that there are enough people in Ukraine who have strengths and resources and big will to do it. Even during the war, Ukraine has managed to expand civil liberties, embracing new legislation that protects human rights, like the Istanbul Convention. And this matters because there are many manifestations of Europe. But one of them is that all of this legislation is meant to protect consumers, but also vulnerable groups and minorities. From Message Heard and the Kyiv Independent, you're listening to Power Lines from Ukraine to the world. In this series, we're going to be mapping the undercurrents and global consequences of the war in Ukraine, beginning in Kyiv and following the roads out wherever they may lead. I'm Jakub Parushinsky. And I'm Anastasia Lapatin. This week, we're looking at Ukraine's place in Europe to find out where our country sits as both a European and a potential EU nation. Nastya, do you feel uh, European as a Ukrainian? And actually, what does feeling European even mean? 
I think being European is definitely a huge part of what being Ukrainian means to me, just because, you know, when the Revolution of Dignity happened in 2014, we already talked about how that, of course, was Ukrainians fighting for our European values and for being a part of the EU. All I know is that my fellow countrymen had to die for their European values. So for me and for millions of my fellow Ukrainians, this isn't just about better roads and less corruption and better economy. For me, this is something much deeper than that. It's a fundamental part of who I am because my ancestors had to fight for it and had to die for it. I think that's a really important part of what Europe means for Ukrainians because of the sacrifice that has been made. But Europe is complicated. It's not just one thing. It's You have a Europe that is essentially all of the EU bureaucracy. You have EU, mm -hmm. which is based on a Europe of values. You have a Europe of common history. You know, the revolution of dignity was called Euromaidan. And I think the values that it was fighting for were very clear. I'm not sure that those values are also something that all Europeans would associate with Europe. Yeah, of course, because for so many people in Europe, their standards of living, their democratic values, the way their bureaucracy and government functions, it's a given for them. They've been born into that system. They didn't have to fight for it necessarily. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not blaming them, but I'm just saying that there is this fundamental gap in understanding of what it can really take to get where we are. And we see this we see this gap very vividly, I think, right now during this war, because there is a reason why Ukrainians complain about talking to people in the West about the war, because it is very difficult. It's extremely challenging getting across the points that, you know, there are governments that are much, much worse than some of the corrupt Western governments. And, and people really have to understand that they... They don't have it perfect, but they have it much, much better than many other countries in the world. And, and they have to continue fighting to make it even better. But they also really have to be very grateful for what they have, because we don't have many of the things they do. To delve deeper into this, we wanted to speak to someone who has spent their academic career exploring European politics and analyzing the geopolitical repercussions of the evolving situation in Ukraine. So we got in touch with Alexander Clarkson, a lecturer for German and European studies at King's College London. Alex's work specializes in diasporas and how people connect the politics of their country of origin with the broader politics of their adopted EU homes. He's also half Ukrainian and one of the most prolific commentators on the war, so he was the perfect person to give us some context about Ukraine's place in Europe. So maybe a very kind of broad opening. Why does Ukraine matter to Europe? Oh, there's so many answers to that. People always ask this question in the present tense. Why does Europe matter now? Why does Ukraine matter now? And I think the first thing I would say is Ukraine mattering to Europe is nothing new. This territorial space that is the modern Ukrainian state, it has mattered historically. And it's mattered in terms of a space through which different empires rub up against each other, right? So it's, it's a political space in which the Ottoman Empire... And the Ottomans are as important as the Austro-Hungarian Habsburgs or the Poles or the Tsarist Empire in shaping Ukrainian identity. I think the role of the Ottomans needs more discussion. But all these four empires, they come into contact in this space. They shape the politics, outlook, culture, partly of the peoples who live this space, who come together and create a form of Ukrainian nationhood that at times includes different religious and ethnic minorities, at times does not include them. There are 
far-right variants of Ukrainian identity. There are leftist variants of Ukrainian identity. So this is a space that is one in which different political entities and different ideas of how to organize Europe and European society have both clashed with each other. And in this space, a, a political culture has emerged or political cultures have emerged in response to this, that have developed their own ideas and their own models and their own philosophies and ideologies of how to organize economy and society and culture. Yeah. So Ukraine matters not just in terms of the kind of strategic issues that we've discussed. It's mattered to the very idea of how Europeans think of themselves, position themselves in the world, how they organize themselves. And it's the clash of two different understandings of how politics and culture and society and economy should be organized. This clash between these two, through the EU concept idea that Ukraine's accept and want to be a part of, and a kind of Russian old European, an old imperial model of the 19th and 18th centuries, you know, of might is right and imperial domination of series of influence. It's the clash of these two ideas that's played out within Ukrainian society, that Ukrainian society has affected influence in the wider world, and plays out in the, the way in which Ukrainians have largely opted for the EU understanding of how to organize European society, economic culture, and the way in which that's actually generated this immense tension and conflict with Russia. So Ukraine matters, matters a lot, has always mattered. So would it be fair to say that sort of, uh, to a large extent, the ideas of what Europe is and sort of what more modern politics is, both in terms of the tools, as well as the ideologies, they have sort of routinely been tested in Ukraine for the last at least two centuries, perhaps three centuries? I think the whole set of ideas, the whole set of concepts, yeah. and, and not just the ones that we would assume in terms of the current debate of national identity and nationalism, and how do you construct, how do you, in this space, different peoples come together and classes come together, and over time, they begin to agree that they have this kind of shared language. And if not even a shared language, it's like a Cossack ethos. The Cossack myth is central. It holds everything together. You don't even have to speak Ukrainian for that. You have to sort of buy into a certain understanding of what the Cossack myth is and how you organize society and identity through it. And the Cossack myth, and it's not just a language or a faith. It's an idea of how to organize society. That to be Ukrainian is to be your own boss. And I think from that flows a lot of the way in which this myth, because it's also quasi-mythical, flows this idea of what it is to be Ukrainian and how Ukrainians respond to war, crisis, and opportunities. And if we start as take it at that starting point as this kind of really tension between a kind of ethno-national and ethno-linguist, or sometimes even racist kind of nationalism, Ukrainian, and a kind of concept of civic nationalism, that's from the very start of the Ukrainian nation-building project, right? Because civic nationalism builds yeah. around the kind of Cossack ethos. You can speak all kinds of different languages, but you buy into that. So this idea between civic and ethno, that's really, that starts, that's really from the start with Ukraine. But there's other ideas, like beyond the ones that we're debating now in terms of the project, like modern trade unionism, concepts of socialism, anarchism, Zionism, right? It's, it's, it's one of the European cultural civilizational cradles of a whole range of ideologies. Like trade unionism hits Ukraine and hits Kiev and it's all these Jewish and Ukraine scenes. And there's a kind of revolutionary ethos that's separate from Moscow. It's, of course, it's hugely influenced by Russia. I'm not somebody who's going to go out and say, well, Ukraine isn't Russia and was never influenced. Of course, it's hugely influenced by events in Moscow, but it's also hugely influenced by events in Istanbul, Vienna, Berlin, also through the, you know, the Catholic connection with Rome, Paris, and then we look through the diaspora in North America, right? That's all these influences flowing together, but it's also influencing them, right? So Ukraine isn't some peripheral entity. These states, Romania, UNESCO, the whole set of other traditions, these countries are at the very heart of ideas and concepts that West Europeans think they have a monopoly on. And I think one of the things that we need to sort of emphasize is that this isn't a peripheral state over there. This is a state at the heart of everything that shapes European social, political, culture, security debate. And through that, it's not just a kind of geostrategic issue of what's happening on our borders and our security 
and a kind of a cultural issue of actually, no, Ukrainians are actually European, so they're they're one of us, which is very much what we saw happen. That shock in February was this realizing, no, there are there are people. We're going to support them. But this is all a product, not just of something that just happened now. This is a product of Ukrainians, but also Poles and Russians, Romanians being at the heart of all of these developments. So look, coming into contact with different models and cultures is one of the main ways that new ideas emerge. For centuries in Western Europe, a lot of them came from the colonies, to be frank. Um, just look at the role of the empire in British literature, you know, the Jungle Book, Livingstone, all of that. But those colonies were far off and the ideas were distant and took time to arrive. In Ukraine, new ideas and new models and cultures arrived suddenly and usually quite violently. But I wanted to turn it to today. Do you think that's something that is happening again? And what are the new ideas and leaders that are being born out of this war? That's a very interesting question, because I think it's not that we're getting new ideas. It's that the ideas that once seemed very radical and were kind of very close circle, Western Europe kind of, you know, group of people that believed in them. This is now a very normal, very mainstream belief. So, for example, the fact that we now actively advocate for a reduction of Russian like music in Russian language or Russian literature or Russian films, just kind of actively separating ourselves from the Russian cultural sphere, that was once a pretty radical thought. Right now, it's it's very mainstream. People who with whom I've argued and advocated for what once was radical and they argued back at me, we've now switched where they are, you know, they believe in this even stronger than I do. And now I see that it's really no longer about where you where you live and, and, and your past. Now the absolute majority of the country is on the same page and we want to be as far from Russia as possible. And uh, so I think it's not that some completely new ideas are emerging. These ideas have always been here. Because because Russia has always been a threat to us, but some people would see it more clearly than others at various points of time. So what you're saying is sort of throughout history, the fact that Ukraine went through all of these wars and other hardships, it essentially acted as, as an accelerant. You know, ideas that would have been at the fringes for a very long time moved to the center very quickly as sort of, you know, whatever group was trying to survive or to build a new reality for itself accepted more more radical ideas. And that's something, you know, that we saw with anarchism, with trade unionism, with Zionism, all of these ideas that sort of came out of Ukraine or where Ukraine played a large part in, in forging them. Yeah, totally. But the war made everything political because there was this whole discussion about how before the war, there were many people who would say that, you know, they're outside of politics as we would say. And we, you know, the people who work in political spheres and who are part of the civil society, we really hated that and would make fun of those people because to us it was ludicrous, right? Because everything, everything about your daily life is inherently political, especially in, in a country like ours where if you don't keep check on your government, if you don't keep them accountable, things go south very quickly. I think this politicization of our society is a very, very good thing. I just hope that it's going to last for after the war periods and people, we're not just going to go back to square one. All right, so where are we going next? Okay, so next, I wanted to see how much the political and economic situation in Ukraine during the 90s and the noughts affected its role on the European stage. 
so if we look at the last sort of 200 years, we have Ukraine as a key scene of the European story. What about the last 30 years? First of all, we have to be, even if you critique a discourse, you have to acknowledge that Ukraine in the 90s was pretty screwed up. I mean, I, 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 nobody's going to argue with that. Ukraine was coming out of a, a collapsing Soviet economy, an economy that continues to collapse in the course of the 1990s. There are old embedded political elites that either switch sides or change the position or a mix of it. Many societies in Eastern Europe are inevitably going to go through immense pressure. They have a dysfunctional political economic model in the, in the 1980s, 1970s. They have corrupt and overpowerful security forces, security services, uh, police forces that are never properly reformed or correct in Ukraine. But Ukraine has this problem, many post-colonial states have after a collapsing empire, that the relationships that all the other governments have is still with the imperial master, right? With the imperial authorities. So, of course, it takes time for Ukraine to kind of make its voice heard on a more European level, to be taken seriously, particularly by the Germans and the French, over the course of the 1990s and the noughts. If you're coming in from Berlin to Kiev in 1992 or three, if you're trying to impress Berlin, like take us seriously, or Bonn at the time, take us seriously, it's going to be difficult. Because there's also all kinds of genuine dysfunctions that aren't solved and genuine problems in Ukrainian politics. So the story of the last 30 years has been that Ukraine is underestimated. Ukraine is much more resilient. Ukraine is stronger than people think. We still have to take the reasons seriously, both the negative reasons, i.e. this fixation on Moscow, which is very much to Ukraine's disadvantage, because Berlin in particular is always focused on trying to have a special relationship with Russia, mm -hmm. which kind of steamrolls Ukraine's Ukrainian concerns. But we also have to understand that that's okay and that's bad, but there's also a reason why they struggle to take Ukraine seriously because Ukraine is in a messy state for, for a lot of this 30-year period. Absolutely. But you look at the first kind of couple of decades, you know, decade and a half, let's say, and there's this kind of chaos, as you mentioned, there's problems all around Europe that are more pressing, more urgent. The Orange Revolution, was that a turning point or did that happen kind of later? I always make this an important point. I am very connected with Ukraine through family, but I'm not Ukrainian-Ukrainian because I'm, I'm diaspora, and diaspora is a different perspective, right? And I very much remember from the diaspora perspective, you could see people getting their hopes up and completely misreading what was happening, right? Because obviously some of what was happening in the Orange Revolution 2004-2005 was a genuine, genuine civic moment and a genuine attempt to bring a degree of unity, but still you had these regional divisions which Yanukovych played on. But a lot of it was an inter-oligarchic power play. And a lot of people felt shafted afterwards. At the time, it seemed much more of a popular moment than if you look back than it was. Yeah. And I think that's something that Maidan later on in 2013 struggled with. Because people said, oh, we've done down the way with this Orange Revolution. Come on, is this bullshit or not? Yeah, and it really took it took a month. I took a month for people to figure out it wasn't bullshit. But 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 Maidan was completely different. It had a a bottom up nature of of I think very sort of civic driven versus, I mean the Orange Revolution. You know the protesters bust in with with the signs and everything. Like look, you need you need some kind of infrastructure behind you to even make that happen, right? And that's something that wasn't present on Maidan in in twenty thirteen. I think also what's interesting about Maidan was actually over time, it did get a lot of financial support, but there was a sense of like whole business networks, new money, yeah. like IT, the IT sector, for example, people whose business models were built around export to the U, who were not necessarily naturally going to be pro-Maidan, but they were like, you know what, we have an opportunity now to be our own guys, not to listen to some stupid oligarch from somewhere telling us, living in Switzerland to tell us what to do. We can, we can, we can be our own business networks. We can operate as groups. 
Let me show Minakov, who's a smart political scientist, really observed this really, really aptly and saying that, yeah, Maidan is a bottom thing. That's crucial. But there was a lot of support it gets, but not from the oligarchs, but a lot of people who saw an opportunity to say, you know what? I can emancipate myself from the system. I can be my, it was a very Ukrainian instinct. Screw you. I want to be my own guy, you know? From everything that I that I know and I've seen, Ukraine in the 90s and the early noughts was a pretty miserable place. I mean, you had runaway inflation, the state was falling apart, lots of criminal organizations flourishing. This is all I know about the 90s is like poverty and the bandits. That's what everyone constantly talks about. Well, but it's kind of true. I mean, the stories to come out of the 90s are kind of crazy. And it was a pretty lawless place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do remember even before the Revolution of Dignity, I was definitely very aware of this almost mystical time of the Orange Revolution. I remember the adults talking about it. I, I was totally aware of this sort of revolutional spirit. And now that I'm reflecting back, that seemed so natural to me, so normal, even though, I mean, it's not actually, you don't see this very often in Germany or France, or if at all, and you don't see revolutions. Whereas to me, because this is just what our recent history has been like, it was very normal for me. I was, I just grew up thinking that, all right, when people are unhappy with the government, they take to the streets. It was the most natural response in the world to me. And, and that's sort of what Alex is also getting to here. I think, you know, one of the quintessentially Ukrainian features or, or characteristics mm -hmm. is this attitude of like, screw you. I want to be my own leader. I want to sort yeah. of be independent and do what I want. And, you know, I think no one is brings down governments and leaders or topples the powerful like Ukrainians. Like that is clearly <laughs> something that is yeah. in the blood. Yeah. So for me, one of the things that changed actually after the Orange Revolution that had nothing well, very little to do with the Orange Revolution, is the change in Europe. So 2004, you have the enlargement. And I wonder, do you think that made a remarkable change in terms of how Europe approached Ukraine? Because after 2004, you start to have Central Europeans within European power structures. I think there's two levels to this. The, the, you got the second level, is the accession, right? That's crucial. And yeah. I, I completely agree with that. The first level, unfortunately, we have to wind back a bit to 1992. Any of your listeners who are EU citizens will absolutely know what I'm talking about, and most outside will not. And it's called the Treaty of Maastricht. And at the very same time, there was something agreed called Schengen, the Schengen Accords. Everybody in the EU knows what this is. Everybody around the EU knows what this is, because this defines our lives. It's the whole, the, the, the foundations of our entire political, economic, social, cultural system in Europe is built around Schengen and Maastricht. And I think the, the, the issue with this is you've got to understand that what Ukraine is beginning to build a relationship with is the Europe of Maastricht. What Maastricht does is it takes this kind of loosely organized, what was called the European community or the European economic community beyond that was built around what was known as the single market, which is market integration, and realizes that if you want a shared economic market to create peace in Europe so that everybody's so economically interdependent with one another that they won't fight each other anymore, so everybody wants this thing to work because that brings peace, and they realize by the 80s, you know what, this needs a political structure around it. You can't separate the geoeconomic from the geopolitical, right? You, you can't separate the political from the economic. So if you have to have a shared market, you're going to have to have political institutions to run it. So they create the Treaty of Maastricht, which means what Ukraine is getting into isn't some loose NAFTA-style free trade agreement. 
between Canada, U.S., and Mexico. It's a system. It's a political system with political institutions and a parliament. And by the time you get to 2004, a currency. But the whole idea of the EU is, is benefits also require obligations and a degree of subordination to the center, which is Brussels. So what, what this means for Ukraine is, by the time you get to the discussion about Ukrainian integration in the system, this isn't just a, a loose market. Once you integrate into what is known as the acquis, which is the foundation of the European EU legal system, it fundamentally rewires all parts of your political system. How your, your judiciary works, how your relationship is between local and national government, how you organize taxation. It influences who you can give your passports to as citizens. It influences how you can control your borders. It increasingly, though this is the, the, the reason why EU is not a full state, is it hasn't got its own army, but it increasingly has a security dimension, which means that when Ukraine faces this decision, you have this slow realization on Ukrainian elites. This isn't just about, you know, well, hey, and we have access to this market and we'll get all this stuff. It means that we have to fundamentally reorganize the state at every different level. And you do have this tension within the Ukrainian system over the course of the knots about this question, because we can see all the winners from this, because they come out on top and, and 20th, all the people, the, the agro-oligarchs, they love it because, yeah. you know, the export market. There are other parts of the Ukrainian economy, steel, coal, you know, particularly concentrated in Donetsk, but not just, that are going to be losers. And they gradually begin to compute that this isn't just some market process. This is going to completely reshape the way the state functions. In the end, for a whole set of reasons, the Ukrainians decide to go for this. But the parallel is that at the same time, the Russians are realizing this. And the Russians realize that if you integrate into this EU system, the way Russia exerts power over its neighboring states, the way in which Russia, the Russian Putin system organizes power within its system would no longer be possible. And the Russians also begin to realize what EU integration means. And that's where it's interesting that you see a shift between 2002 and 2012. Enough people, not just in Kiev, but all the other major regional centers decide, actually, you know what, we're going to make money off this, and this is good, and this is an advantage. Actually, it gives us bargaining power to Kiev. And in Moscow, people realize that if we allow the states around us to join this, we lose power over them. That accretes to Brussels. And if we join this, the way we run our system in an authoritarian autocratic way, in the way we want to run it, becomes impossible. So. I think for Ukrainians, being a part of the European Union is more political than economical. Although, of course, there is the economics part as well, because Ukraine isn't exactly the most prosperous country on the continent. But I do still believe that for us, it's the rule of law and protection of human rights and minimal, if any, corruption. It's those things that we've been fighting for for so long. That's why we've had the revolutions it's it's those things that that drive mainly uh, this instinct of being with the EU. It's it's freedom. It's this fundamental belief that each and every one of us is free and can make their own choices and be protected by the government. And me having the same protection as a member of parliament, you know, and 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 not having not having the amount of corruption that Russia has, for example. That's why we're trying to turn away from it. That's at least what I'm getting from it. What do you think, Jakub? I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, my sense is that for most Ukrainians, it is, it, it's not even that it's just political. It's also very symbolic. I mean, people are mm -hmm. fed up to their core with the oligarchy and with the feeling of no consequences, that people can completely 
abuse the political system, abuse the economic system for their own benefit, and you know that the rule is unequally applied to everyone. And that's something that was at its core in Euromaidan. You know, I remember this this one story that just you know it stick stuck to me. Like we were in Mezhikiria, that was the the President Yanukovych's sort of off the books private residence. Um, the day it fell, and mm-hmm. we're sort of walking through this territory that's the size of Monaco, which has private car collection, a pirate ship, gold fields, you name it. A it's zoo? sort of crazy. Well. Actually, so that's, it's not a zoo. So the territory that you're talking about, it's basically, it has this separate wall and it's just near the entrance and it's pretty close to the main residence, right? And as you walk through it, you have fields of apples and uh, potatoes and you have a greenhouse and then you have lots of these exotic animals. And there is a road that leads back from this territory through a laboratory from which there is a tunnel that goes to Yanukovych's kitchen. Ah. That what people called the zoo was actually his private larder. That was his refrigerator. I'm not even vegan, but that's just that just sounds terrible. No, it's really shocking. And I remember sort of walking through this territory with a and there was a middle-aged woman next to me and there was just this feeling in her eyes and this sort of I mean it was a, an anger that was down to the abyss of hell. And she was just saying, like, we haven't eaten meat for months. And he lived like this. It was it was just complete outrage. Coming back to this, this idea, I think when Ukrainians think about the EU, it's about rejecting the system, right? I don't think there is a consciousness of just how much legislation and how much sort of the shift in the political structures Mm -hmm. happens with the EU. But I think that's what Moscow is very aware of. They're aware Mm -hmm. that, you know, once Ukraine integrates into Europe, it's very difficult to mess with it. All of its ways to influence the local situation, um, you know, get diminished or even eliminated. And And that's why we have this war, right? Like, it's not about NATO. It's about Ukraine leaving a, a power, a system and and integrating into a different one in a way that is very difficult to reverse, maybe impossible. Yeah, I totally agree. We are now at the point where we have three different Europes or three different European ideas. We have one version of the European idea where it's a pragmatic, almost creature comfort driven exchange trade, travel. It's all underpinned by material benefits for the citizens. Then you have the second thing, which is what you described, which is actually a real super state. And then you have something which is, I would say, an ideological Europe. Well, this is the first time that you have a country that has actively bled for Europe. Are these three versions of Europe able to coexist? I think we, we have to add an additional layer to this. Mm-hmm. We have to overlay that with the fact that Europe also has liberals and social democrats and greens and left and far right and Christian democrats and a number of other ideologies. The reason why the EU is so resilient and why Ukraine's commitment to the EU is increasingly also strong and part of this, this model is that in Ukraine as in the rest of the EU, sorry, it's not a member yet, but as part of the wider system, the reason it's resilient is that every ideology has its own answer to these balance between these three factors, right? So Christian Democrats have their understanding of what they want the EU and European integration to be for, right? And so does the far left in much of Europe. And so does the far right. 
So the resilience of this model, and I think where Ukraine becomes more and more like other states part of the EU system, is increasingly, of course, there's still your skepticism and opposition to it, but increasingly every ideology in the spectrum finds its own argument to support European integration and finds its own balance between the two, three factors that you described, right? And Ukraine becoming the country that bleeds and sort of almost martyrs itself for Europe, which is also a very, very old Ukrainian nationalist theme, by the way, or national identity theme of, we martyr ourselves, our suffering, it's very Christian, right? We, 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 we died for your sins. It is, but that's sort of what has me worried because now I think you have a portion of Europe that understands that or even identifies with that myth. And then you have a portion of Europe that couldn't be further away from that. I mean, is this a conflict that Europe can resolve or is it going to spin the two parts apart? So I think what was really interesting is that it was not just the invasion itself. I think there are ways in which Putin could have done this at a lower scale yeah. and he could have gotten away with so much more. But my making it about the existential question of the existence of an entire European state and framing it in a kind of attack on not just Ukraine, but everything that EU sees to represent, and everything actually parts of the, even parts of the European far right see as part of their identity, it does trigger a response, not just in Central and Eastern Europe. To understand the EU, you need to read Goskini and Udo Zoid Asterix. You know Asterix is village where they always fight? Yeah. And argue, but the moment they're threatened, they come together and beat up whoever threatens them. The EU is Asterix's village. And the one thing you want to do is if you want to split the EU and get your interests and, and mess up a place that Ukraine and so just, is you don't want them to suddenly think that you're threatening them too. Because the moment you do that, the Asterix villages come to, comes together, they drink the magic potion and beat you up. You could totally see how Putin got it completely wrong. Like he's paying all this money to understand the EU through the SVR and FSB and they got it completely and utterly wrong as to which buttons you don't push with the EU Europeans. I mean, I think every Ukrainian who went to Europe after the war began has had a very similar experience of being just utterly overwhelmed with love and hospitality and solidarity and seeing Ukrainian flags everywhere. I mean, when I was when I was in Poland just a week after the war began, I was shocked to see that you just had to show your Ukrainian passport and you got discounts in stores, you got free food, free beverages, you had just all of these amazingly kind things and there were fundraisers in every little coffee shop, there were flags everywhere. And now we, we're, we're sort of used to it, but I mean, I think I think that's remarkable. Well, when, we, when we talk about solidarity, those are not just words, I think you really see this immense level of support and it, it makes you feel less lonely in the face of this huge aggressor that Russia is. It's truly been re remarkable to see how many people have participated. And as you say, just the level of emotional reaction is yeah. absolutely crazy. My question, though, is looking forward. I mean, the immediate reaction was incredible. Is there enough magic potion to hold? Because this war is going to last for a, for a while. I think so, because Ukrainians are doing everything that's possible and impossible to show that we're worth sticking up for. Remember that image with the keychain of the European flag? So for our listeners, for context, in the first whatever month of war, there were an image from Buch or from Irpin, the outskirts of Kiev, where there were a lot of massacres. There was this photo of a woman, her dead body laying on the ground, and in her hand she had a keychain 
and they had a European flag on them. And uh, everyone shared their photos saying like, this is our application to join the European Union. This is what we do. We die for it. Yeah. So that's something that has to change. Like the EU cannot but change as a result of this, right? Yeah. Like its mythos, its, its identity has to change because of that. What I'm a little bit concerned about is that there is a lot of Europe for which that will be a very foreign idea. Right. If you look at the willingness to fight for your country in Europe, there's a lot of countries where, you know, we're barely, you know, past the 20 percent line. In, in some cases, I think maybe even below it. This is a, a very different, almost a civilizational gulf. Now, I think there is an opportunity and Europe has this diversity of experiences that make it stronger and and better. But as a, that is a big step. That is a big jump for Europe. And you know, I'm worried about whether it can basically make that leap. So on that note, what are we ending with here, Jakub? Well, finally, I wanted to know about the future, both about Russia and Ukraine's future in the context of Europe. The past 10 years, you have Euromaidan, the decision to break with the association agreement is reversed. Ukraine starts to move towards adopting part of the acquis, you know, slowly integrating into Europe. That's obviously put on hold now. If we look at the positions of European countries vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, do you think we are destined for the next five years to only view it through a military prism? Or can we go back to, let's say, economic, civic integration? So when people speak about Ukraine's European integration path, they always think of full membership. Whereas there's the EU and its member states, and there's like a core within that, the 22 states that are in the Euro, Schengen, of course, a single market. Okay, to explain to Americans, it's a travel-free area. It's where you have no passport controls. So you can move freely, move goods per people, services, capital, and there's no controls on it. You just get on a plane from, it's like flying from Cleveland to San Diego. And... Then there are states that are not full members of the EU, so they don't call the shots in the EU's institutions, but for reasons of national pragmatism and the national compromise. So some countries like Norway or Switzerland were not comfortable with political union, but they realize they're fundamentally dependent on the European economy, EU economy, and they need to be integrated in the single market because that's so much easier to trade and move people around and you benefit from this. Now, that third ring, I think Ukraine's already in it. Yeah. And I think Ukraine's already in it because of what we call, again, the Deep Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement and a separate agreement which gave Ukraine's limited travel access but no work access. De facto, once the war starts, right, suddenly there's just a complete drop in trading and quotas. Any vestige of, of, of limited access for the Ukrainians the rest of the single market was dropped to save the Ukrainian economy. That's not coming back, right? So what we have to do, I think, is sort of make sure the institutional frameworks catch up with the de facto reality. So I think Ukraine is already in a Norway pathway. A Switzerland pathway. That's like 90% of the walk into the EU system. But that final 10% of full membership, that's the biggest and longest process because that final 10% would give Ukrainians power over other EU citizens through the EU institutions. And I think that's where we're going to have a lot of struggle on the EU side to say, yeah, these are our guys and whatever. Do we want to give these really militarized people, this militarized society with its security conflicts, do we want to give them a full seat on the European Council where it can veto things that we want? Do we want 40, 50 Ukrainian MEPs, Azov MEPs, maybe even in the European Parliament? That's going to be the biggest barrier. I mean, 
Is there appetite in Paris, Berlin, and Brussels to continue this journey? I think that so much prestige and power and influence has been sunk in ensuring the survival of the Ukrainian state in its largely in its current form. I think this is when we discuss, has Ukraine won this war? Ukraine has already won that war. It won that war in April. There's enough to ensure that you, the EU, on, with the front lines as they are now, will invest a lot and enormous resources with full Berlin-Paris support. Whether you have an equal level of commitment to ensuring that Ukraine regains all the territory it has lost since 2014, I am less sure of. That's the war we're in now. Obviously, the Russian and, and Ukrainian ambitions may be greater. The Russian and Ukrainian ambitions are pretty much like, okay, this is now about war of a territory. We've more or less hopefully secured our state. Now we want to get this land back. Whether the EU has the appetite to keep that going, I am less sure. And the danger about that is if the EU doesn't do that, okay, so we stop the precedent of wiping out an entire state. Good. Yeah. And that state becomes part of the EU system pretty much already. But are we going to then let the Russians get away with at least holding on to the precedent of re redrawing other countries' borders? Because they'll do it again somewhere else. And so I do worry that if the EU doesn't have the patience to also let Ukraine fight the war to get its territory back beyond Kherson, like all of it, then that precedent means Russia just gets bruised and beaten up and decides, okay, Ukraine, too much trouble. Mm -hmm. But we've also been humiliated and embarrassed by these goddamn Europeans and by these Ukrainians. We need to show that we're still top dog. They'll turn around and beat someone else up. Do you think there will be a quick and easy integration into the EU? Of course not. To begin with, because EU is an extremely, extremely bureaucratic organization. I mean, it takes forever to pass anything, do anything. So, of course, if we're talking about a country that is in the middle of war or has just won a war, which are the only two options I'm considering here, it's, it's going to take a while. But maybe I'm too positive, but I think it's bound to happen because after all of these discussions about how the nature of EU has to change. And just frankly, you know, after everything that has happened up to this moment and when we win this war, our cover letter for this application is going to be, hey, we just lost hundreds of thousands of people, which is a likely number, and they died. So we join you guys. And here we are literally going to war and winning it to be a part of the EU. And that's why we deserve to be there. I do not see a world where they say no. I don't want to be pessimistic, but I do a little bit. And here's what I mean. I think it's one thing to ask for aid and support, as Ukraine does right now. Mm -hmm. I think the kind of framing, like you just said, you know, look, we've paid such a dear price for this. We have sacrificed so much. You owe us this is something that is not quite as impactful for, let's say, and I don't want to pick on them, but like the Dutch voters, right, who are very kind of pragmatic and will say, well, look, we're happy to help, but do we actually want to invite another, you know, sorry, but headache from the East because they have you know, Hungary, which they're in the process yeah. of kicking out. And I think to Alex's point, offer them the opportunity to make decisions about how we also organize ourselves, right? It's sort of the final step where mm -hmm. they they essentially, you know, give Ukraine the right to also influence European affairs. And 
I think that's something that will be a harder sell. It will require very tactful diplomacy. Yes, great communications. Ukraine is fantastic at that. But that's not a given. You know, I think that final step will be much trickier. And uh, Ukraine is going to need to be very savvy and build a lot of coalitions here within the EU and with with, with different stakeholders across across the continent. I guess that's a great way to wrap this up. Next week, we've got a really special episode as we speak with Radoslav Sikorski, the Polish member of European Parliament, journalist, and one of the most significant politicians working on policy in Eastern Europe over the past couple of decades. We spoke about his role as the architect of the Eastern Partnership, the EU's reaction to Russia's full-scale invasion, and much more. In two weeks on Powerlines, we'll be speaking to Helen Thompson, a professor of political economy at the University of Cambridge, to explore the impact of the war on global resources. We'll be focusing on energy in particular to see how the current crisis impacts both geopolitics and the lives of ordinary people. If you liked Powerlines, look up Message Heard wherever you're listening to this podcast for more of our original shows and find us on our website at messageheard.com or on our Powerlines Twitter at PowerlinesPod as well as on Instagram and Facebook by looking up at Message Heard. You can also follow the Kyiv Independent on Twitter and Facebook at Kyiv Independent and Instagram at Kyiv Independent underscore official to get the latest news and stay up to date with our coverage. You can also support the Kyiv Independent by finding us on our Patreon to get behind the scenes content. Go to patreon.com slash Independent to continue helping us report on the most important stories coming out of Ukraine. And please also subscribe and rate Powerlines in your podcast app as it really helps others find our show. Powerlines is a partnership between the Cave Independent and Message Heard. It was produced by B. Duncan, Harry Stott, and Talia Agustidis. The executive producer is Sandra Ferrari. The theme music is by Tom Biddle and Alfie Godfrey. 